welcome, especially if you know this is your first time or you've only been here a few times. We really want you to feel the welcome. And you might be wondering, these people seem kind of friendly and they seem kind of nice. Are they really that way? You know, once I get to know them, we're human, all right? We're human. You're gonna get, you're gonna see some warts, but yeah, they're really that nice. I've been here a while, so okay. Um, our mission. Washera Community Church is a gathered group of Christians who exist to give creative and meaningful worship to God and discover and develop disciples for Jesus Christ. We strive to love God and love others fervently. We've got a ton of announcements today. Um, oh, I also wanted to mention, I'm sure we've got a lot of folks online with the snow. So um, just think about the people who aren't here and let's be praying for them. And thanks for joining us online. Um, so announcements. Uh, single Adults Fellowship, lunch at Lakeshore at noon today, I think. Uh, men's breakfast is on the 18th. Um, also, this is the second Sunday of the month, uh, so the offering will be taken at the end of the service on the way out. This is for folks who are who are in need. Um, and uh, yeah, those baskets will be back. Passion Week is coming up. Um, we've got everything lined up here. I'm going to rattle it off real quick, but make sure to check your bulletin because it's a little different than last year. So uh, Friday, that's April 7th. Uh, the Good Friday service will be at 6:30 p.m. Sunday, April 9th is Resurrection Sunday. We've got sunrise service at 7. Sunrise service, right? Okay. Not quite sunrise, but it's a, sun, a grace-filled sunrise, right? Um, breakfast at 7.45. Breakfast is back, yes. Okay. Worship service at 9.30 on Easter Sunday. And then for uh, kids who haven't been attending Kids Church, we wanted to, to, to let everyone know that uh, they're invited downstairs. They're going to they're gonna be practicing some songs for uh, Resurrection Sunday. So if, if they want to get in on that, um, they can go down there um, and be part of that group. Uh, also, there is a new local missions uh, starting up. I was talking with Chris Bosville about this last week. It's, it's, it's cool stuff. So... Um, you can go out and talk with Chris. She'll be in the foyer today, I believe, uh, to chat about that. And then um, there will be a planning meeting March 18th, which is right after the men's breakfast. So that's convenient if you're going to the men's breakfast. So let's pray. Lord God, we give you this time. I thank you for everyone who's gathered here um, and gathered online to bring glory and honor to your name this morning. Lord, you are worthy of praise. You are worthy of all the adoration we have in our hearts. And God, we don't have enough. Uh, we need to grow in our love for you. And I pray that you would reveal more of yourself this morning as we sing these songs, as we worship your glorious name. Lord. Heavenly Father, we praise you for the story of Holy Scripture and the coming of Christ to be our Savior. There is no greater name under heaven whereby we must be saved. Jesus, we exalt you this morning. We thank you for dwelling and being with us here. And for all eternity, for all eternity, we will praise your holy name. So may we do so even now as we turn to your scripture in Christ's name. As I mentioned, Pastor Adam and Stephanie are in Texas. I'm Pastor Robert. We're continuing in the series that Pastor Adam has been preaching in 2 Peter. If you don't have the ESV scripture journal that was passed out some time ago, I do invite you to open your scripture. Uh, there is a Bible in the chair in front of you. It's the NIV text. It'll work. It actually has some good features to it. So page 1894, it's really best if you have the scripture open to you today. So I invite you to do that if you don't have the ESV journal. It's a long text, 
uh, that we have. I am going to include last week's text, the first three verses that Pastor Adam preached uh, from this chapter, 2 Peter chapter 2, because it sets up the subject for us this morning in the new scripture that we'll be looking at. So again, have your Bible open or the ES, uh, ESV journal or the blue Bibles in your chair, page 1894. It'll help you out. Let's go to the Word of God. Chapter 2, verse 1. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. And our text for this morning For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, He condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then... The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. And especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. Bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones Whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. But these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction, suffering wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children. Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Baor, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. Father, your word says that you esteem those who are humble and who are contrite in spirit. 
and who tremble at your word. God, find our hearts this day trembling at your word. And if they are not, we ask that you bend our will and bend our knees. For Christ's sake, amen. Our choices inevitably are the product of teachers and teaching. This makes each one of us accountable for what we learn and from whom we learn it. In the beginning, our God-ordained teachers were our parents. Thank you, Mom. Thank you, Dad. Homeschoolers continue in this path. While many others sit under teachers and teaching from preschool through advanced learning degrees. In an electronic world, the floodgates have opened. And we can now hold a million teachers and a billion teachings in the palm of our hand. In the emotional and complicated verses before us this morning, Peter is warning the believing church to be on guard for false teachers. It is a disconcerting fact that since the fall of our first parents into sin, the broken world has ex continuously exchanged the truth of God for a lie, biblical fact for fiction, and has turned salvation in Christ alone into a multiple choice question which has no wrong answers. So why is Peter so worked up about false teachers in the church? Because this is how loving parents respond when their children are exposed to the danger of false teaching. Friends, no shepherd who has a heart for the flock looks at the approaching wolf and says nothing. Instead, with great emotion in this text, he warns the flock. Friends, eternity is at stake. Being in the presence of God or being in the presence of the damned for all eternity is at stake. Every one of us will experience one of those two outcomes. So it's absolutely certain. It matters for eternity what teachers we submit to and what teachings we accept and live by. The first thing we're going to look at this morning, the first half of the text, talks about the precedence for judgment in verses 3 through the middle of verse 10. This judgment will fall on false teachers based on three definitive past judgments of God that are found in the book of Genesis. The first illustration of past judgment is fallen angels in verse 4. Peter writes, if God didn't spare angels when they sinned, let's stop right there. Notice Peter's brevity. It's significant. God is the cause of judgment. Angels are the subject. And sin is the reason for judgment. The question of how holy angels could fall into sin is not answered by Peter. 
It is hidden in the eternal counsel of God, as we do not have a clear explanation of that in Scripture. But the question of when angels fell points us first to the fall of Satan, which Jesus spoke about briefly in Luke chapter 10. From there, we usually go to two prophetic passages in the Old Testament, in Isaiah chapter 14 and Ezekiel chapter 28, where God's judgment on Satan in heavenly realms is superimposed over a historical judgment in earthly realms. The next thing we know is that Satan appeared in Genesis chapter 3 as a serpent to Eve in the garden when he orchestrated the fall of Adam and Eve into sin. All of this is true, but Peter says that God cast sinful angels into hell. And according to John 12, verse 31, the prince of this world, Satan, is not there yet. He will be there after the great white throne judgment. For this reason, many Bible teachers connect 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4, our first verse this morning, to an equally cryptic passage in Genesis 6 as the time when God cast fallen angels into hell. The details of Genesis 6 are what I call an 8.30 question at our Bible study Wednesday nights because the details are beyond our scope and our time this morning. But don't miss the obvious point that Peter is making. God cast fallen angels into hell. The supreme judge of all the earth and of all of heaven has this authority to cast people into hell. Peter used an unusual word only used one time in this verse in all of Scripture, the word Tartarus for hell. In secular Greek, this word was used for the lowest part of hell, below Sheol in the Old Testament, or Hades in the New Testament. There God committed them, Peter says, to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. No chance of release. Incarcerated until judgment when they will become residents permanently of the lake of fire. We are well aware that not all angels are currently locked up. Many, including Satan himself, are freely roaming our world and are the gleeful companions of false teachers and false teaching in the church. We can summarize Peter's point by saying, if God judged fallen angels, and he did, then he will also judge false teachers. The second illustration of a past judgment is the global flood in verse 5. The historical record of the global flood can be found back in Genesis chapter 6 through 9. Peter writes, if God didn't spare the ancient world, let's look at just that much of the verse. Notice again Peter's brevity without explaining how or why. To his first century readers, the global flood was a known fact. He goes on to say, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. 
Peter used a unique word for the word flood. It's the Greek word cataclysmus, from which we get the English word cataclysm or cataclysmic. God is the cause of the flood, and ungodliness is the reason for a cataclysmic flood. The why question is not difficult for us to understand when we see our contemporary culture pretty much unchanged from Noah's day. In Genesis 6, the Lord saw that every heart was bent on pursuing evil all the time. He saw how everybody had corrupted their ways and how the entire earth was filled with violence. So the decision of complete destruction was made. Total annihilation of all life on the entire planet. And this judgment on the wickedness of the world would be carried out by God's decree with basic water. But, Peter says in verse 5, God preserved Noah. Here's the good news. This is the first of two illustrations of God's gracious rescue plan. God is a God of incorruptible justice, righteousness, and holiness. His name should be on the Wisconsin Supreme Court for April. But he is also the God of mercy, of love, and compassion. These attributes of God's love and God's justice can never be separated. Notice the verb that Peter used, God preserved Noah. In Greek, this verb means that God stood personal guard. He protected. God acts as Noah's personal security officer. It speaks of incredible grace in the midst of global judgment. Eight people globally were protected and preserved by God. This shows that the divine purpose of God can never be thwarted because God himself is the one who is standing guard over the righteous. God preserved Noah as a herald of righteousness, Peter says. Now, we have no record of Noah's preaching in the Old Testament. I wish we did. But all along the way, I believe Noah was preaching the righteousness of God and that God is the only way to be saved. Every time that he put a board together and a plank together on the ark, he was preaching that there's one way to salvation, and it's in God alone. At age 500, brothers and sisters, he was called to build an ark. At age 600, God himself closed the door of the ark on those that he preserved. Peter's point is simple for us. If God judged the ancient world with a global flood, and he did, then he will also judge false teachers. The third illustration of a past judgment is Sodom and Gomorrah in verses 6 through 8. The historical record of this judgment can be found in Genesis chapter 18 through 19. Peter says, If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, 
he condemned them to extinction. Notice that God is the cause of the incineration of Sodom and Gomorrah. The why question is answered by two phrases. In verse 7, the sensual conduct of the wicked. And in verse 8, their lawless deeds. These cities were guilty of the sin of homosexuality. Because this sin violated God's decree for marriage and violated his purpose for sexuality within marriage, God incinerated those cities and those citizens. Verse 6, Peter says, these cities are an example. In other words, they're a pattern for future judgment. The destruction of them was a deterrent so that these sins would not be repeated again. Like Noah, God's mercy we find in the midst of the destruction of these cities. Three times Peter calls Lot righteous. The triplicated emphasis on Lot's behavior contrasts with the exceptionally wicked sin of his neighbors. Lot did not buy into the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah, and he was greatly distressed by it and by his surrounding culture. It affected his conscience. It tormented his soul. In his inner being, he engaged in the battle of the flesh versus the spirit, as all believers do the same today. Finally, the angel of God grabbed the hands of Lot, his wife, and his daughters and pulled them to safety before God destroyed those cities with burning sulfur. Today, the only evidence of those cities is the exceptionally high sulfur and mineral content of the Dead Sea. It should be no surprise to us when I say that Sodom and Gomorrah have been rebuilt in our own culture. And we are living there. Still, we are acutely aware of the massive divide between the church and the LGBTQ plus community. Years ago, I went to a Focus on the Family conference, and I remember being greatly moved by the testimony of a pastor out east who saw the rise of AIDS at the beginning of that epidemic epidemic in our country, and he had a burden for those people. And he began visiting AIDS patients in his local hospital who were dying, simply caring for them as people who are created in the image of God, and sharing the gospel of Jesus with them when they would allow. A gay radio show host caught wind of this and invited the pastor to come on his show he was asked, where do you stand on the issue of homosexuality? The pastor humbly replied, oh, it's a sin. And the host said, we don't like that, but we do like how you care for us. And soon gay people started showing up at that pastor's church, not necessarily to repent, just to hear what this man had to say. 
who had demonstrated ordinary kindness and love toward their community. And the church began to get a little bit nervous. People were asking, what should we do, pastor? Gay couples are walking in. And the pastor humbly replied, I guess they can sit over there next to the self-righteous, the arrogant, and the proud who are already seated. I fully understand that I run the risk of offending somebody on either side of this issue. So let me say two things briefly. First, the scripture before us is God's infallible word and is not subject to be reconstructed or altered. If this scripture offends you this morning, please consider that God is trying to get your attention through the offense. And second, if anybody in the LGBTQ plus community or anybody in this church who struggles with gender identity or same-sex attraction, please, hear me out. You matter to God. And I want you to personally meet Jesus, whose love will not fail you, whose truth will always say that sin is unacceptable, and whose grace will set you free. I want you to personally meet Jesus, who came to rescue lost sinners like everybody in this room, and in whose arms you will find your created purpose and meaning and worth. We can summarize Peter's scripture at this point by saying, if God condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, and he did, then he will also condemn false teachers. And then we draw right to the conclusion that Peter makes for us in verses 9 to 10. If God didn't spare angels, if he didn't spare the ancient world, if he didn't spare Sodom and Gomorrah, then the concluding word at the beginning of verse 9, the Lord knows two things, how to rescue the godly. This conclusion is certain. This is security and comfort and encouragement for every believer. The presence of Jesus will rescue you in this life and deliver the believer into eternal glory. This is certain. But the Lord also knows, secondly, how to keep the unrighteous under punishment. This conclusion is also certain. This is a warning for the ungodly to turn from sin and to turn to Christ. Notice the present tense of Peter's second conclusion. The Lord keeps the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. So what is Peter saying? God will incarcerate the unrighteous in a prison of their own making. 
God is doing this so that the prisoner will have no solution except to turn to the closest person to him, which is the prison guard. And that guard is Jesus Christ. All of Scripture says that Jesus is the only one who can set prisoners free. The solution for the unrighteous is graciously standing right next to the prisoner. One more thing before we move on to the second half. Did you notice that Peter presented three illustrations of judgment, but only two illustrations of rescue? Did you notice that? I believe that this is on purpose because it soberly teaches us one more truth. God did not provide a rescue for angels when they sinned. He provided no second chance, no mercy, no grace whatsoever to angels when they sinned. And so we understand, friends, that God owes us nothing. He does not need to provide a rescue for us. He does not need to give us a second chance. And still he does. This irrefutably demonstrates the amazing love and grace of God that is found in Jesus Christ, our Savior. Well, the second half of our scripture will go a little quicker. In verses 10 through 16, the second half, we see the character of false teachers or their marks or their sins. In this second half, Peter's approach was not simply to name names. Instead, he paints a picture for us of the distinguishing sins or marks of false teachers by connecting them with these past judgments we've already reviewed so that we, friends, so that we would know how to be on guard for false teachers today. And I've picked out three sins, excuse me, or marks of false teachers that we'll look at here briefly. The first is the sin of arrogance in verses 10 through 13. This sin connects false teachers to the uh, judgment on fallen angels. Two times, Peter says in verses 10 and 12, that false teachers can be spotted because they blaspheme. It means they speak evil against. They make condemning judgments against. You can spot false teachers because they blaspheme. They place themselves in an authority over someone or something. And the object of their blasphemy, verse 10, is the glorious ones. In the context, I believe Peter is referring to the fallen angels, which might actually seem contradictory to us in calling them glorious. And yet they are transcendent, powerful beings, even in their fallen state. Now Jude helped us to clarify this text of Peter in Jude 8 when he clearly wrote, they slander celestial beings. 
these false teachers are arrogantly making condemning judgments on the demonic spirit world, which makes no sense because the demon world has already been condemned by God, and they will not be offered rescue. In verse 11, the holy angels don't even make condemning judgments against uh, these fallen angels, so neither should we or false teachers. That's why Peter says in verse 12 that false teachers are blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant. They just don't know what they're talking about. And what they are talking about has no basis in Scripture. This lack of rational sense is why Peter compares them with irrational animals. In their arrogance, they have forfeited all reason of discerning right from wrong. They are no longer operating with a sound mind or a God-given conscience. They are incapable of correcting their thinking or of changing their course. So they are driven by the creaturely instinct of a fallen, hardened nature. Peter summarized their temporal and eternal lot with two parallel phrases. At the end of verse 12, they will be destroyed in their destruction, and at the beginning of verse 13, suffering wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing. We're far more familiar with the brief statement that Paul made about this in Galatians 6 verse 7. A man reaps what he sows. Arrogance or an ignorant defiance is the first mark of false teachers. The second mark is the sin of lust in verses 13 and 14. This sin connects false teachers to the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah. They counted pleasure to revel in the daytime. Had there been daytime talk shows in the first century? They would have been on every one of them. Their unashamed behavior doesn't even wait for the cover of darkness. They are blots and blemishes. Like leprosy, their sin covers them with stains and scars and scabs that never heal. These terms are significant, for Paul uses the opposites of these terms in Ephesians 5, verse 27. Christ presents the bride to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In verse 13, they are reveling in their deceptions. They enjoy and celebrate the lie that they are living while they feast with you. False teachers can be found at church potlucks. They can be found going to the Lord's table. Their strategy is to move into all parts of a church and to fellowship under the guise of trusted friendship. That's why Paul said in 2 Corinthians 11 verse 14 that Satan masquerades as an angel of what? Of light. False teachers in verse 14 have eyes full of adultery. They cannot look upon a woman or a man without sinning. They are insatiable for sin. They are never satisfied. Their drive for sin is never complete. It always wants more and more. And if that's not enough, they entice unsteady souls. 
Here, Peter describes false teachers as a decoy whose aim is to lead searching or young believers away from the truth of Christ in Scripture. So lust is a second mark of false teachers. The third is the sin of greed. In 14 to the end of our text, this sin connects false teachers to a new example of judgment in the Old Testament, the prophet Balaam. False teachers have hearts trained in greed, verse 14. Peter used the verb trained, and we get the English word gymnasium from that word trained. They love money, and they work out. They work hard in cashing in on money. Their ministry motive is how to bleed the church and its people of money, not about who they can serve or about how to seek and save the lost. As if being thoroughly furious with false teachers at this point, Peter simply shouts out, accursed children. They may be in the church, but they are not children of God. They have not been rescued by the blood of Christ. They are children who are under a curse. Look carefully as we near the end of this text in verse 15. Peter says that there is a right way, which is an obedient walk with God, as laid out in the Holy Scripture. It is the only way to find ultimate purpose and meaning in our broken world through knowing our Savior Jesus Christ. And the Scripture, brothers and sisters, is God's truth, and God cannot lie. So we can confidently evaluate every teaching and every teacher against the pages of Holy Scripture. We who have come to share in Christ will always confess that Jesus is the only right way. But false teachers are like those who have followed a different way. Peter calls it the way of Balaam. Satan is relentless and the master of leading people astray. There will always be false teachers who will point out another way. Peter names one of them, Balaam, who loved gain from wrongdoing. He loved money over obedience to God. Greed drove his life and his actions. His story may not be well known, but in Numbers 22 through 25, the scripture says that as a priest of Midian, he had a prophetic gift, and he used that gift for financial profit for himself. He was hired by the king of Moab to curse Israel as the nation of Israel was moving through his land on the way to the promised land. And in order to expose Balaam's greed, God let Balaam go. But on the way, the angel of the Lord with a drawn sword blocked Balaam's progress three times. And three times, his faithful donkey veered off the path of impending judgment with this angel in front of him. But Balaam didn't see the angel. And finally, that faithful donkey just laid right down on the ground. And Balaam, beating the donkey three times, the Lord opened the mouth of the donkey, as Peter said in verse 16, to restrain the prophet's madness. He was passionately driven 
by a love for money. Greed is the third and final mark of false teachers. So friends, as we close, I think Peter has been very emotionally charged, but he has also been very clear about speaking of the certainty of rescue and the certainty of judgment. Most of us will remember that 10 days ago, Alex Murdaugh was found guilty of the deaths of his wife and his son in South Carolina. And he was sentenced to two life sentences to be served consecutively. Without making light of that situation, I don't know exactly how that is accomplished. It may be the only legal ease that we have to indicate the unspeakable heinousness of crimes in this life. Set against the backdrop of the heinousness of sin against a holy God. I think now we might better understand Peter's words against false teachers. There is, in fact, a worse sentence than consecutive life sentences on this earth. It is the eternal sentence which God, the righteous judge, will certainly deliver to all the unrighteous. If God has been speaking to your heart this morning in any part of this scripture, please, Turn from your sin and turn to Christ before the judgment comes. And to those who are included in Christ, I pray that we solemnly tremble at the scripture that we've lingered over this morning and that in a greater and more pronounced way, we treasure the certain rescue of Jesus. Father, we thank you as we come to a close of your word that you speak truth to us in every way. And God, our hearts are heavy for the loss that are in our community, the loss that we know will be judged by you. And we would be there today, Father, if it weren't for the rescue of your son, Jesus Christ. How we praise you and thank you, Jesus, for your cross the means of our salvation. And God, how we ask that in these latter days you would use us, you would use this church, God, to be a shining light on a hill to a dark world that is dying and that is under judgment. Oh Christ, may we celebrate you in this holy season of Lent. May we celebrate your cross. May we celebrate your rescue and your deliverance. In your precious and holy name we pray. Amen. Amen. Wow. Uh, first, praise God for working through Pastor Robert today. Amen. I would like all of us to pick up a Bible. We're going to read the Word of God together as a congregation. I want us to turn to the book of Philippians in chapter 4. And I would like us to all read verses 8 and 9 together as a family of God. Philippians 4, 
verses 8 and 9. Join me, please. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received, heard from me, seen, put into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. Amen. You're, re you're dismissed.